hear your truth and pray, Lord, you would bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' name. If you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word this evening to the Epistle to the Galatians, Galatians in chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 13. Beloved, once again, hear the word of our God. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in, past, in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance rather. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's holy word. We look to him for his blessing under it. If you remember back uh, two weeks ago when we took up the first section of this fifth chapter, I told you that really this entire chapter and even the beginning of the sixth chapter is something of a commentary on what we find in the last several lines of chapter four. But we often refer to those last, that last portion of the fourth chapter as the allegory. And you remember, you remember what is conducted to us. It's, it's an illustration of sorts that the apostle brings to the to our attention, and and you remember the subjects that he uses in this illustration. He, he takes Hagar, Mount Sinai, and earthly Zion on the one side, and and says, "There you have a picture of the covenant of works." 
And then on the other side, he, he has Sarah and heavenly Jerusalem. And he says, there you have a picture of the covenant of grace. But of course, in this illustration, both administrations produce heirs or seeds. The seed of the bondwoman is, of course, Ishmael. And Ishmael, you remember, receives no promise like that which Isaac received. He was the son of a bondwoman, or Isaac was the child of promise, a recipient of grace. Now, as you look at that illustration, there are really three themes that that illustration orbits. The first one is liberty. He says very pointedly that that Sarah, that is the covenant of grace, produces liberty for her offspring, the children of promise. Meanwhile, the second element is that of persecution, and that is what the children of the bondwoman exercise against the children of promise. And then lastly, you have the theme of inheritance. The inheritance passes over the child of the bondwoman and comes to the heir of grace and to the heir of grace alone. That's the illustration. And this whole fifth chapter, and again the beginning of the sixth, is devoted to show us how that is to be applied to your life and mine. Now, now beloved, as we think of that, it's important for us to remember that 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 allegory is given to us for a real and practical purpose. The apostle is coming to these churches in Asia Minor, and he's, he's doing so with an earnest and pastoral objective. He comes to them, you remember, before this allegory, saying that he has questions about them. He stands in doubt of them. They're confusing him. And it's in response to that that, that he gives them this illustration in which you and I are to see something of a question. A question posed to these Christians. Your character, which does it resemble more? The child of the bondwoman or the child of promise? Do you look more like Ishmael? Or do you look more like an heir of graves, like Isaac? That is the critical critical pastoral question that we're confronted with. And we're confronted with it in our text this evening. The passage in front of us this evening, verses 13 to 26 of this fifth chapter, is perhaps very well known to us. Of course, the apostle begins in the 13th verse with an exhortation. Use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but but by love serve one another. In other words, he comes to them and he says, do not be devouring one another. Instead, exercise charity. Do not be like Ishmael. Be one who is possessed of a gracious disposition. Verse 16, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And he tells us then, what are the works of the flesh? Verse 16, it will lead you to spurn fornication. It will lead you to resist false religion and strife. It will cause you to turn away from all manner of filthiness. And instead, as you walk in the Spirit, you have, of course, what you find in verses 22 and 23, that list of those fruits. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance. What's striking about 
these lists is that you don't find a parallel in the ancient world. Aristotle was a great ethicist. But he never in such a systematic way presents to us this kind of material. But is that all that is really profound or unique about this text? Is it just that here we have a very simple comparison between the the characteristics of of a child of promise opposed to those who are walking in the flesh? I would submit to you that when most read this text, the answer they come away with is is in the affirmative. This is just, as it were, a a kind of basic, almost pedantic uh, demonstration of Christian ethics. But friend, I would submit to you this evening that there is so much more here. So much more that is profound and so much, so much that really penetrates into the depths of Christian experience. To see that, I want you to notice, beloved, that we are in the midst of an argument. The apostle here is not making a digression. He, we have to assume, is making a single cogent argument that he began, as we said already, at the end of the fourth chapter, and that will run right through the rest of this epistle. In other words, this is not a parenthesis. This is not an aside. This is part and parcel to the argument he's already been prosecuting. And the second thing you and I, we need to recognize here, is that these lists then are given not to be excised from their context. These lists are given to serve a very simple, but a very real and practical purpose for the apostles' argument. These lists, in other words, are not simply just to stand alone, independent of what's gone before. And if we consider what's gone before, then I think these lists will come to us with even greater power. Friend, I want you to notice, as we look at the context here, there are direct parallels between the verses that we have before us this evening and the allegory that we encounter at the end of chapter 4. Let me just demonstrate that for you briefly. In chapter 4, verse 28 and verse 31, you have these words. Verse 28 We are the children of promise. Verse 31, we are not the children of bondwoman, but of the free. But then come down to verse 13 of our text, of chapter 5. Ye have been called into liberty, that is, unto freedom. You, Galatians, are the child of freedom, not the child of the bondwoman. The apostle is resuming that train of thought. Verse 4 and verse 29. He that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. But then come to verse 15 of chapter 5. Do not bite and devour one another. In other words, do not be like Ishmael who persecutes the spirit of hatred. And then come to verse 30 of chapter 4. The son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. And then crucially our text. Chapter 5. And there verse 21. They which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved, you remember as we reviewed that allegory very briefly. I said there were three themes that that allegory orbits. The first is liberty. The second, there is persecution. And the third is inheritance. 
And all three of those themes resurface at the last part of this fifth chapter. And with vigor. The apostle, in other words, is extrapolating further what has already been revealed to us at the end of chapter 4. And I can go further. Again in verse 15 of chapter, of chapter our, our text. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Now friend, if you go back even further into the epistle, back to chapter 2, you remember the apostle has already shown to us personally what that means to him. He was crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Now friend, what does that mean? Well, that brings us to the connection that the apostle makes with the Spirit. In our text, he says, we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Well, in 2.19, he explains to us in part what that means. I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live unto God. How does the apostle live? How does he live? Only as he is dead to the law. Death to the law equals a life of holiness. That's what it means to live unto God. And friend, then as we look at this text, when he exhorts us to walk in the Spirit, what does he mean? Taking you back to chapter 3 very briefly, he says to the Galatians, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? In other words, there's a distinction in the apostle's mind between living in the flesh and living in the Spirit. But the question is, what is the flesh? What is the flesh? Well, if you go back to chapter 3 and verse 5, he tells us, The works of the law or the hearing of faith, in which those two things are supposed to parallel flesh and spirit. The works of the law are the flesh. The hearing of faith is that which is spiritual. Friend, I know that I've walked you through basically the entire epistle in less than two minutes, but allow me just to reiterate what the apostle has said to us up to this point. He's not dealing with antinomians. When he gives us this list about what the works of the flesh are, he's not dealing with people. He's not making an argument against those who said they had no use for the law. Quite the contrary, he's dealing with legalists. And what the apostle is saying very clearly is, the works of the flesh then are the works of the children of the bondwoman, the works of those who are under the covenant of works, the legalist. Oh, this is quite profound, friend. He turns everything on its head. He's saying, in fact, it's the legalist that encourages sin, and it's the gracious soul alone that possesses holiness. Friend, if we're keeping all of this fifth chapter in its context, the apostle is still arguing that those who belong to Hagar belong to Sinai. Friend, these are those who will do the works of the flesh when only the children of promise will be possessed of a gracious disposition. What does this teach us? Well, beloved, it teaches us very briefly that legalism incites sin and the gospel induces holiness. Legalism produces the works of the flesh. It's the gospel alone that makes men holy. And I want us to consider that briefly this evening, friend, under three headings. I want us to consider the fight that the apostle has in view. I want us to see what he says to us about the flesh. And finally, I want us to look here at what he ascribes to faith. And so take first of all what you have in verses 13 to 18. He tells us there that all the law is fulfilled in one word. And you remember, beloved, he's saying there that 
that as he looks at the second table, the law, the fulfillment of that law, is of course love to one's neighbor. But why does he, do, why does he highlight this? You and I are not to see that the apostle is excising, as it were, the first table of the law. All that he's doing is he's demonstrating what James would write later, and that is that the true religion and its exhibition will be one of manifest charity. In other words, the sincere believer will be clearly a charitable person. He that loveth not his neighbor whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? John asks. James again, pure religion and undefiled before God to the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widow in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And so when the apostle brings us to the church in Galatia, you and I are supposed to remember he's really asking the same question he began with in chapter 4. Galatians, which are you like? Are you like Ishmael? A persecutor. One bereft of love to his neighbor. Or are you possessed of a gracious disposition? But then you come to verse 16. He says here that the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And I've already explained to you just very briefly how, how we should see that text in its broader context. The spirit here is that gracious disposition. And what is the flesh? Again, in chapter 3, the flesh is defined as the works of the law. That is, that pretended piety of the legalist. That is the works of the flesh. Verse 18, if you be led of the spirit, ye are not under law. And now he sets law and spirit opposed to each other. The flesh is sin incited by legalism. The Spirit is grace, which induces holiness. Now friend, as we look at this text, you and I are reminded very pointedly that in believers, grace and legalism are at war. Our older writers would put it to us this way. They would say, if we believed perfectly, then we should live perfectly. And that that was not hyperbole or exaggeration. Beloved, if you and I were possessed of perfect faith, if there was not an alloy, not not dross mixed with our believing, we would live sinlessly. That's the idea right throughout the New Testament. If we are possessed of perfect faith, beloved, we should be fully conformed to Christ's likeness. And so the idea in all of this is that you and I we will struggle hard against sin. But have we not found it the case that there's a fight in us, a fight in us that struggles even more vehemently at times against the remedy, the only remedy. Of course, that is the gospel. You see, when you and I seek to die to self, to pride, to self-righteousness, you and I are taking up a cross. And, beloved, there is something in legalism that appeals to the flesh that, quite frankly, you and I will be inclined to till the day we die. Here the Apostle says, we experience daily that the flesh lusteth against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. Not only are sinful inclinations at 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 variance with that principle of grace, but our legal inclinations are as well. And within the believer, those two things are at war. 
The idea here is that you and I, we are a people who are conscious of our sickness, conscious of our need of a physician. We have some knowledge of the depth of iniquity, not exhaustively, but we know something of its root. You see, beloved, our, our problem, as illustrated so poignantly in this text, is that within us, there is a real aversion to the cure. And that is the grace that comes only by, by and through Christ. Now, if that is the fight, what does the apostle here say of the flesh? He says, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And then he lists off a, a number of sins. Uh, for, he goes to sins against the seventh, the third, the sixth, and the first commandments. And you and I have to ask a question, why? Uh, why not work either orderly? Why not work exhaustively? But I want you to notice that there is something of a pattern here. If you look at verse 19, the sins that are listed there are sins that are very visible. Verses 20 to 21a, he goes to sins that are hidden from the view of other men. In verse 21b, he concludes with those sins that once more are visible. So what is the apostle doing? Well, beloved, as he comes to give us this list, he gives us a list of the works of the flesh, a friend, that that are not purely external. The apostle is here unfolding for us clearly the spiritual aspect of the law. You see, the legalist will try to reduce the law, make it something that is manageable, something that that is purely visible. But the apostle is mindful here that, that sin is not only that which is seen, He deals with the heart as well as the actions that that may be seen. Friend, the point of all of this is, these are the works of the flesh. The works of one who is like Ishmael. One who is still under the covenant of works. Friend, I don't know about you, but this is perhaps one of the most profound elements I've encountered throughout this entire epistle. The apostle is genuinely coming to the churches in Galatia. He's saying, you see those legalists there, that that veneer of piety. You you see those men who, who boast so much about their growth and godliness. Paul says, these are their works. That's a bold even shocking statement, isn't it? To say that such men as are like Ishmael, the very ones who are preaching to you in Galatia this legal doctrine, that these are their works. It's a staggering claim. But what does he mean? Well, friend, if we hold this text together throughout with all of those statements that are similar in the New Testament, there are two points that I'd like to make. The first is, is that this is a simple fact. This is a simple fact. I mean, just note, for instance, what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is law. And even as you go back to Romans 7, when the apostle is prosecuting a very similar train of thought, he says this, he says, sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. When the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Note what the apostle is saying. He says, when I received the law as one unregenerate, 
when I receive the law, as it were, as it comes to me through the covenant of works and not at the hand of Christ, it exercised me in sin. The point that he makes here is not only did it reveal his sin, but it even excited it. And you notice here he says, sin took occasion. That's not that the law produced sin. But the flesh within man so bristled under that law that it only produced more and more sin. The law, as it were, opened up the fountain wider and allowed greater concupiscence to manifest. On that text, one commentator puts it this way. He says, sin being stirred or drawn forth by the prohibition of the law is thus. He says, the law did not properly give occasion, but sin took it. The law is not the cause of sin, though by accident it is the occasion of sin. The more the law would dam up the torrent of sinful lusts, the higher do they swell. Beloved, that is very much the point the apostle is making in our text. Look at the legalist. Take him for all of his veneer. And Paul says, there you have a man in whom the dominion of sin is unbroken. A man, a man for whom the law becomes an occasion for sin. Whether it's visible or invisible, it's nonetheless true. Because the legalist will never be truly holy. Just briefly, friend, I think it's right for me to pause here and, and, and just highlight the fact that you and I know this by experience. The world knows this in many ways by experience, don't they? We live in an age where the scandals in the church are highly publicized. The failings of ministers, the failings of ecclesiastical institutions, on grave moral issues. It's well known to all. And, and what's so staggering is, you know, some of the men who have fallen to some of the greatest uncleanness were, if you go back through their ministry, you'll find that, that these were some of the men who preached most on the subjects of modesty and chastity. And we scratch our heads and we wonder, how can that be? How can that be? We're, we're confused, but, But friend, the apostle, the apostle in this text reminds us of something that I think is quite helpful. He would say that confusion is unnecessary. You see, when you find such things, friend, and and you find that that ministry is devoid of Christ, let the man preach about charity, chastity. Let the man preach about any moral good. But if it's devoid of Christ, There's a world of iniquity that is just beneath the surface. The legalist will never be holy until he comes to Christ. The works of the flesh are the works of those who are still beholden to Sinai, the works of the legalist. Our third and our final point, though, is what the apostle says about faith. And that's verses 22 to 26. I want you to notice, beloved, as you look at these two lists, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, there's a difference 
a categorical difference that we could easily overlook. When he's dealing with the works of the flesh, he's dealing with deeds. But when he comes to the Spirit, he's dealing with dispositions. And what you have here then is the Apostle's clear argument that Spirit-wrought reformation is holistic. It is not merely about external reform. It's not merely about cultivating new habits. The man is made new. The man has new inclinations, new dispositions. That's the idea in this text. And friend, I want you to notice that this is integrally tied to what the apostle says later. He says, they that are Christ's, these are those who live in the spirit. In which the apostle is making another distinction. The legalist insists on activity you must be doing thus and such. And the apostle insists on identity. You are Christ's. You live in the spirit. There's a difference between activity and identity, between deeds and dispositions in terms of focus. But that actually makes this text all the more heart-searching, doesn't it? The apostle doesn't come to the churches in Galatia and say, you need to be doing this. He asks them a question, who are you? Not what are you doing, but who are you? Who are you really? In verse 23, you have at the end of that list of dispositions, the statement that against such there is no law. Now, if you go back to verse 19 of chapter 5, you'll notice a, a somewhat of a similar statement where he says, if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. So what do we make of these two elements? If you'll permit me just for a moment, friend, to read from Calvin, I, I think he's quite helpful here. He says, the exhortation here is to walk according to the Spirit. You will then be free from the dominion of the law, which will act only in the capacity of a kind advisor and will no longer lay a restraint upon your consciences. By molding our hearts to his own righteousness, the Lord delivers us from the severity of the law so that our intercourse with himself is not regulated by its covenant, nor our conscience is bound by its sentence of condemnation. Now, friend, what is he saying here? He's saying that the Christian is made holy truly, and that independent of self-righteousness. Not through the covenant of works, but through a covenant of grace. If righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain, says the apostle in Galatians 2.21. The apostle here is making it very pointed. Whether that righteousness is forensic, that is before the bar of heaven, or infused in our sanctification, it must only and will only come through Christ. Beloved, here you and I have a clear picture of the Christian ethic. Let the person be never so disciplined. Let them be given to all manner of religious activity. Paul says pointedly, they are still beholden to the works of the flesh because only are men made holy through Christ. Let a man, according to his legal dispositions, act, and he will only become a twofold son of hell. Only a gracious disposition will produce holiness. 
The Apostle's very clear, especially in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, is that work of renovation in which the man is made truly holy, but it is in Christ. That's all the Apostle is saying here, beloved. Let, let men, let men boast in all manner of religiosity. The apostle says it's foolishness, it's a veneer. If it is without Christ, none. None advance an inch in true holiness. A friend, just as we close, I want to apply this very pointedly. Because this is a practical and a very pastoral text. You see, the first question that needs to come to us is, are we, are we sensible of sin? I suppose that's a question that, that we need to ask ourselves daily, but, but it's one that's certainly urgent in our text. If we're insensible of sin, friend, we need to recognize that this is a legal humor. As the apostle reminds us when he comes to the works of the flesh, the law is broad, and, and legalism alone will try to curtail the law to make it somewhat more manageable. It's legalism that leads men to be insensible of sin. You see, the truly gracious spirit will contemplate the depth of the law and so also the heart's corruption. We see that so potently in our text this evening. Are we trundling, I wonder, in religious duty? Are we just, as it were, slogging our way through Uh, one particular act or another. You see, friend, have we not found it to be the case that that kind of trundling experience happens when we are least mindful of our need for Christ? Our need to, to be found in Him and walk only according to his spirit. When we go on our own exertion, beloved, have you not found by experience that even just a moment in prayer, just a moment at the throne of grace can feel like a marathon? The apostle says the gracious disposition is that which produces true holiness. But that disposition must be rooted and grounded in Christ and free grace through him. It is grace alone that induces holiness. And beloved, I, I think it's right for me at this juncture too to say that this text, this text is one that we can go to in any number of circumstances. You know, as, as a pastor and even as a counselor, you'll have folks come up to you and, and they'll say that, that I'm doing this thing and I need to stop it. Or, or I'm not doing this thing and I need to start it. Or, or they'll come in and they'll say, I'm, I'm feeling this way and I should or I shouldn't. Help me. I want you to notice, in both of those cases, you have folks who come to, come to us. And what is their focus? Their focus is either doing or feeling activity or experience. 
But according to the apostle, where does genuine Christian experience, gracious experience lie? Oh, beloved, this is so much a corrective. Everything in this fifth chapter ties us to our identity in Christ. It is not foremost about activity and experience. It is foremost about whether you are united to Him. Because all of those things, our obedience to God, and and our experience of communion with Him, are rooted in this, first of all. And so, friend, that's also how you and I will detect the legal disposition. The legalist will insist on activity, will be preoccupied with doing, and, and from that preoccupation, try to produce holiness. Or that legal disposition will lead one to focus purely on religious experience, something that they hope to cultivate in themselves so as to produce holiness. And the apostle says, none of that. None of that. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh. It is your identity in Christ, the apostle says, that is the root and ground of holiness. And so when either come with concerns about doing or concerns about experience, we don't start. The apostle would never urge us to start by analyzing their activity or their feelings. The apostle would urge us to draw them to Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you in Him by faith? That, beloved, is the foundation. Doing and experience are evidences. But it's identity that is first and foremost. Because, beloved, only those those who are in Christ will be made truly holy. I want to close just briefly, beloved, with, with a quote from Luther. Because this is the pastoral element, I think, that, that this text drives us to contemplate. Luther put it this way, he says, Legalism is so deeply rooted in man's reason, and all mankind so wrapped in it, that they can hardly get out of it. Yea, I myself have now preached the gospel nearly 20 years, and have been exercised in the same daily by reading and writing, so that I may well now seem to be quite rid of that wicked opinion. Yet notwithstanding, I now and then feel this old filth cleave to my heart, whereby I would bring something with myself to God, because of which he should give me grace. Love of the flesh, lusted against the spirit. Dying to self, dying to the law so as to live unto God, is your daily and my daily calling. Just briefly, friend, on a very practical note, how do we do this? I won't give you a 10-step guide. I don't think there is one. But I wonder if our lives would be much different if every morning when we woke up, we asked ourselves the question, what does it mean to me that alive at this very moment with beating heart, there is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom I'm united to by an unbreakable covenant. Does that change my day? The second question is fairly similar. 
What does it mean to me? That the triune God has so loved a wretch like I am, has so loved me to send his son, so loved me to pull me from that lowest hell, that I might be the object of his delight. And that only by free grace. Friend, both of those questions take us back to our identity in Christ. I wonder if we meditated on those things first thing in the morning, every morning, if we would not find it easier, even reflexive, to live more Christ-like. Because at the end of the day, friend, it is, it is grace alone that induces holiness. Amen.